Hello and welcome to Everyday Sublime. This is your host, Josh Summers, and it's a pleasure to have you here. In this podcast, uh, through reflections of my own stories, uh, interviews, conversations with friends, what I try to do is explore a full-spectrum spirituality. My background is in Chinese medicine and in teaching yin yoga, and I have a long history with Buddhist meditation, and I try to weave those three themes of yin yoga or somatics, energy medicine, and dharma into a synergistic approach to the path or to spirit, the spiritual path. And in this episode, what I share are two things, really. One is a, a prompt or question that came forward from a member in our practice community called the Riverbird Sangha. And it's a question around the role, function, the accessibility of generosity, the practice of generosity on the path. And I, um, I very much appreciated that, that prompt, that question around generosity. What does it mean to, to live a generous life? Um, and I, uh, my attempt to answer that is vis-a-vis or through the story that um, Carl Jung shared frequently. And it's a story that he recommended that his students share whenever they gave talks or lectures or seminars. And it's called The Story of the Rainmaker. And in case it's not clear in listening to the talk, what I'm trying to suggest is that the activity of the rainmaker, in at least in my humble opinion, the activity of the rainmaker in the story is, in many ways, the most generous thing one might be able to do with our life. So I offer this story for your own practice reflection. I hope it opens up some questions and avenues of exploration for you. And before I give you the talk, I just want to say that if you would appreciate or if you think you might benefit from more consistency in your yoga or meditation practice, or if you you feel like you might benefit from more feedback or opportunity to talk about your practice with others, I want to encourage you to join or consider joining the Riverbird Sangha. This is the practice community that my partner Terry and I facilitate um, we are primarily gathered around the themes of yin yoga, qigong, somatic embodiment, energy medicine, and contemplative meditation. And we try to weave these things together, these practices together in a way that is both down to earth, uh, that, that is accessible, but most importantly is transformational. That these practices become living experiences of the dharma or living experiences of the the, the spiritual heart journey in your own life so if you'd like to um, look into practicing with us there's a link for you in the show notes we offer two weeks for free a free two free week trial along with a copy of my ebook the what why and how of yin yoga so check out that link in the show notes we look forward to practicing with you and without further ado here's today's story jung and the rainmaker So to begin this talk, just picking up on the themes from the last few talks, uh, the update that I've been waiting for, and um, I know some of you have been sending thoughts and goodwill around, is the update on my niece, um, who uh, a few weeks, it's, time is blurring, but it was about a week and a half ago. Or just over a week ago, she went into hospital um, 
feeling unwell and not sure what was going on. And she was in the ER. They did an MRI. They found a tumor in her brain. And within 24 hours, she was fortunate to have the tumor removed um, by a very good surgeon in Boston. Um, but the diagnosis is that it is a malignant cancer. And uh, that sort of sends everybody into a, a deep uh, swoon of unknown. And um, they're home now and and just getting things together for treatment and getting the plan in place. Um, but this theme, which is the theme of death, um, is one that you know Buddhists, Stoics, and many others, many other wise um, mystics have spoken about. And there's a real urgency in reflecting on death so that um, one way of putting it is we're able to channel and prioritize what matters most or channel our life and prioritize what matters most. And as painful as great loss is and as overwhelming as it can be at times. This is a truth as you know, it's, it's hitting me personally, it's hitting me and Terry, my family personally, but it's not a personal thing at all. So I want to try to speak to this at the, at a very broad level in that regardless of your story, regardless of where you are, who you are, th this theme, is as i said in the newsletter last week is one of the few real assurances we get in life massive loss of some form and it's not just a once-off it's as i said it's moments big moments of loss and so in the face of that mystics and philosophers and, uh, psychologists have really you know asked big question how do we live in the knowledge of that how do we live in the face of that and i've received you know some really wonderful continue to receive really wonderful reflections from from many of you and i want to kind of continue to try to platform your voices in the context of this ongoing evolving conversation that we're having um in the in the in the Buddha's day, um, the monks and nuns that practice with them, and, and this is this survives to this day. But monastics are referred to as venerables, venerable so and so, venerable Ajahn Amaro, venerable Ajahn Sumedho, venerable Ajahn Tanasiti. Venerable gets placed there, and in thinking of you, all of you, and thinking of the responses that I get, I. I wish to address you as venerables, people um, that I hold in high esteem and who, for whom I feel, or from whom I feel, I receive tremendous wisdom 
and and so the beauty of my position right now is that in my sharing and then in receiving the responses from you the way in which your responses pick up amplify explore a facet of the path a facet of the teaching a facet of life that i was not able to to mention or articulate or put into words as well to have your contribution um, is just immensely uh, it's i'm just immensely grateful for it and i and i and i want to highlight uh, your venerable contributions and one one question came up this is this might sound like a little bit of a uh, a diversion for a second but one question came up around the role and function even of generosity in the path and this venerable member said over the last year or two i've been thinking about how generosity fits into the dharma we have spoken much more about compassion for instance and that's certainly true when i um, tend to speak the, the two broad wings of practice that I speak from are wisdom and compassion. So this person is rightly raising the question, where does generosity fit in? What, is the, what does generosity look like? And they continue. They say, on a personal level, a thought experiment came to me or came to my mind. Without sounding too sentimental, this is the thought experiment. When I do leave the physical world, which I certainly don't intend to do anytime soon, how would I like to be remembered in one word? And I just pause there because I think this is a great contemplative question. When we meet death, one question might be from, from our heart, how do we want to be remembered? And for this member, they, he said, the answer what came as he was blank. And the experiment yielded the answer generous. So this person wanted to be remembered as generous. And they continued to reflect saying, while compassionate, caring, loving, all sound good and fine and aspirational, there's something about generosity that rings a particular bell for me. And I mean generosity in multiple ways, materially and spiritually. To me, it seems like compassion. Generosity is compassion coupled with action. It means to be generous to people in general, but also to be of service. And to be truly generous it must be both material and spiritual that involves some sort of sacrifice and is beyond that which is expected. The sacrifice is not painful, but feels good. But, they say, it does give up something personal. Time or money, for example. I guess it doesn't really feel like sacrifice they say to cheat to achieve generosity involves engagement 
Is that a cousin of awareness, engagement? Engagement applied here involves people and interaction and is hugely satisfying. So I love this uh, reflection from one of our venerable members um, because it really is speaking to, uh, in one level, one deep level, the activity of our heart's awareness as we engage with others or engage with ourselves in in the expression of generosity. And it, and it really raises the question, what does it mean to be generous? <clears throat> I know when I've, whenever I hear the terms of um, the term generosity, um, it's often for better or worse used in, in um, I most, most commonly hear it uh, in Dharma communities around uh, what's called dana. D-A-N-A, D-A-N-A, dana, the Pali word is what is translated as generosity, and it's used to refer to the, the material sustenance that practitioners give to teachers and monastics so that they can survive. But the teachings are often given freely, and uh, those that give the teachings are dependent on the generosity of students for survival. And um, while we don't seek, uh, we don't come to you regularly for, for, for dana, for generosity, Terry and I do receive monthly generosity from you with your memberships, and it does support us. It is absolutely uh, critical to our survival in this, this world of, of teaching. But I love how this reflection opens up the broader question of what does it mean to live a generous life? And how we answer that question really comes down to how we understand who and what we are and the relationship between who and what we are and the world we're in. And because my own sense of self-discovery is one that who and what we are is an evolving question. It's an evolving work in progress. The more we see, the more we realize how little we did know and how little we continue to know. So this is a, I think a wonderful question to just layer in to our lived practice. How does generosity appear or manifest in our meditation practice? How does it manifest in our daily living practice? And not to to answer the question for you. I'm not trying to answer the question for you, but to help explore the question, really. I want to share a story that I have recently heard um, that Carl Jung used over and over and again through his career uh, as the great Swiss psychiatrist who made profound discoveries of the, the human psyche. And 
one of his senior students and colleagues was named Barbara Hanna. And I'm, I'm reading a book by Barbara's right now. And, and she says that Jung told this story almost at every seminar or lecture he ever gave. And he encouraged, he was the one bit of direct advice he gave to all his students. He said, whenever you give a talk, whenever you give a seminar, tell the story of the rainmaker. It's the rainmaker story. And some of you may know it. I, I was new to me. Um, so the context of the story is that one of Jung's friends by the name of Richard Willem was living in a part of China. I assume it's middle to early, mid, mid-century in the, in the 20th century, but the date's not given here. This is just two paragraphs, a very simple short story. Um, but I want to open it up and consider this as, an, as a, a meditative story for this question of generosity. So as Jung tells it, there was a terrible drought in that part of China where Richard, Richard Willem was living. Terrible drought. After all the ways to bring rain that the people knew had been tried, they decide to send for a rainmaker. And this interested Willem very much. And he was very careful to be there when the rainmaker arrived. The man came in a covered cart, a small wizened old man who sniffed the air with evident distaste as he got out of the cart. And he asked to be left alone in a small cottage outside the village. Even his meals were, were to be laid down outside the door of his small cottage. Nothing was heard from the rainmaker for three days. But then it not only rained, but there was also a big downfall of snow, unknown at that time of year. So after three days, it didn't just rain, it snowed. Very much impressed, Jung's friend Willem sought the rainmaker out and asked him how it was that he could make rain, let alone snow. How did this person do it? What kind of magic did this this person have? His answer is telling. The rainmaker replied, quote, I have not made the snow. I am not responsible for it. Willem insisted that there was a terrible drought until he came, until the rainmaker arrived. And then after three days, they even had quantities of snow. The old man answered, oh, I can explain that. You see, I come from a place where the people are in order. They are in Tao. So the weather is also in order. But directly, I got here. So when I directly arrived, I saw that the people were out of order. And they also infected me. So I remained alone until I was once more in Tao. And then, of course, it snowed. 
and I, when I when I consider that, you know, it, it, and part of my skeptical side is like, was this magic? Do I believe this? Does, is this possible? What's what's going on here? Just to review a little of the story, you know, the rainmaker doesn't claim responsibility for the snow. He doesn't become, as we might say, egoically inflated or grandiose and and self-important, like, yes, I made it happen. He does not identify with causing the snow. What he says is that where I'm from, People are in the Tao. People are in in harmony with the way, the the order of nature. When I arrived here and he smelled the air and it smelled of dist, you know, there was a distasteful smell in the air. When I arrived here, he realized people were not in the order and they infected him. So in arrival, he could sense and feel within himself, within his own being, the disorder the disharmony. Is there anybody on this call that does not feel the disorder and disharmony and loss of or, like, harmony in whatever we look at in the world? So in establishing a small cottage on the side of the village, entering into this enclosed space for three days, the quote-unquote rainmaker brought order within himself, returned harmony interiorly, which is not very different from the practice that we do. That when we sit down for however long, whether it's five minutes, 15 minutes, 30 minutes, in our own metaphor of an enclosure, you know, the, the, the seclusion of our interior, interior world, we are engaged with exploring the natural order of things. And a, a, a question that, or a, yeah, it is a question, a question that I think circulates in many hearts when we when when people come to practice is what is the relationship? And we talk about this all the time, but what is the relationship between this interior journey and the experience or state of the outer world? How does my ongoing commitment, how does your ongoing commitment to practice? influence affect change externally you know and and many many um many many people kind of held within a materialistic meaning only seeing material forces at play in the world people who have a very materialistic view of cause and effect will just dismiss this Sitting on your on your cushion by yourself isn't going to do anything. 
until you really, I think, open to the truth of where this practice leads, which if I can juxtapose this story of the rainmaker sitting in his cabin, restoring order, reconnecting with the Tao, finding harmony within. In the Jungian sense, that process involves the ability, and Jung used the word, to stand the tension of oppositions within. I might use the word to hold. Our practice strengthens, nurtures, develops our ability to hold great oppositions within. And when asked, I, I put this in the newsletter last week, but when asked about the likelihood of atomic war, when asked about, and you could add now nuclear war, Jung's answer was, the only way we will avert that outcome is if enough individuals, it's very specific on this, is the only way we'll avert this is if enough individuals are able to hold or stand the tension of oppositions within themselves. Because as soon as yin and yang are not able to be held within our own heart, or yin and yang are not able to be held within our own psyche, <clears throat> what we can't hold within ourselves gets projected onto somebody else or a group of people. And in that projection, <clears throat> the other, <clears throat> whatever it is, whoever it is, the other becomes the repository for our projected evil. So when we practice, what I'm trying to suggest is that there's, I think there are clues for our practice in the story of the rainmaker. That just as the old man sat down in his cottage for three days, we, in our own way, <clears throat> doesn't need to be precisely exactly a cottage in China for three days <laughs> on a retreat. Anytime we spend within ourselves undistracted from the influence of others. So he had to remove himself from the external stimuli, just leave the meals outside the door, leave the emails out in the, in, leave the emails on the phone without looking at them. But when we do that, when we come into ourselves and we confront this is, this is the practice question I'll have for you today. When we, What kind of oppositions do we confront when we sit with ourselves undistracted? And you could even say the experience of distraction is part of the opposition that we'll experience to being focused. So focused and distraction are two oppositions in tension with each other. How do we hold that? in our own enclosure of practice. 
And so just as Jung encouraged all his students to share the story, to contemplate the story, to engage this story, I see this story as the beginning of an answer to the question of generosity. Yes, you can think of generosity in terms of material, you know, gifts. You can think of generosity in terms of how we give and share our time. All important questions to consider. But who is giving the generosity? What level of consciousness is giving? And the you know there's a relationship between the level of consciousness we have consciousness we have and what we're able to give. So I know this is going to sound conveniently self-serving here. <laughs> Say that from the beginning. I believe practice, your practice, is one of the most generous things you can do learning to hold the yin and yang the 10,000 tensions of opposition in your own heart establishes a being that is able to be generous to let others be what they are not to just again not to condone or not to um to be passive, but to stop projecting, to end the game of projection. So the question, and we'll sit now, we'll come to a meditation, is when in our practice, what kinds of oppositions are we aware of holding? What kinds of oppositions are we do we do we become conscious of that what kind of oppositions are revealed to us within a meditation and the the two tools that i've been teaching from primarily are a, the tool of receptivity so to, to open to the, the tensions of opposites within ourselves, we need to be receptive and relaxed enough to receive them from our unconscious. And with receptivity and allowing these in, Another tool that I've been sharing is the tool of reflective journaling. I've been hinting at that, talking about it here a little bit here or there, but it doesn't need to be writing. But any tool, any any process of reflecting back on your experience, thinking back through the past, a meditation, your life, just living a reflective life helps us see these oppositions, these tensions more clearly. 
and I'm mentioning these both of these the the reflection the receptivity and the reflection because um as I'm discovering kind of with a bit of ch- chill down my spine this is the same um process that Jung recommended and and really one of the biggest or most important tools he taught called active imagination to become quiet receptive and then to creatively engage with the material of the unconscious that arises Okay, I hope you enjoyed that talk. I hope the reflections I offer around the Rainmaker open up some avenues of exploration in your own practice. The feedback from this talk has been pretty good so far, so I'd be really curious to hear about what you make of it and how you internalize it in your own practice experience. And Before I go, if you would like consistency, or if you'd like to see more consistency in your practice, um, if you would benefit, if you think you might benefit from attending a regular class in yin yoga or meditation or qigong or or fluid fluid yin yoga um, do check out what we're offering in the riverbird sangha we have a wonderful warm accessible community Um, it's very inclusive and we love talking about yin yoga meditation qi cultivation and the the real highs and lows of the path all together so Uh, We look forward to practicing with you. And until I see you in the next episode, stay safe, stay strong, keep practicing, and I'll see you soon.